If you had a time machine and could bring news of our glorious future to the humans of the past, where would you go and what mind-melting knowledge would you drop on them? I mean, you could go back to the 1700s and try to explain the internet, but that would also require so many other universe-altering explanations that by that point, the poor idiot you were talking to would have glazed over and passed out. See, there's a balance that needs to be struck, where people know enough about the thing you're talking about to understand the words that you're saying. The news you bring can be summed up in a single sentence, and that single sentence is enough to blow their minds. And for that kind of maximum effectiveness, the fabric of reality has a sweet spot I like to call 2003. Imagine going back in time to 2003, right after Daredevil, Paycheck, and Gigli debuted back to back to back. And tell anyone, grab the first rando you meet on the street, and tell them in 10 years, Ben Affleck will direct a movie that wins Best Picture at the Oscars. Reindeer games, Ben Affleck? They ask in bewilderment the very same. Then you jump back in your time machine and race back to the future to see how you just altered human history. Does anybody even remember Gigli? That movie was the cause of death of more than one career. It derailed Jennifer Lopez from the track to leading lady that she was riding. Sure, she's still a pop star, but she hadn't opened a movie anybody gave a shit about until Hustlers in 2019. Oscar-nominated director Martin Brest never worked again afterwards. I actually had to Google to make sure he wasn't dead, and Ben Affleck went from a Hollywood golden boy to a Hollywood punchline. Now, we all lived through the Renaissance, so it wasn't so surprising to us. We saw The Town and Gone Baby Gone, so we had some heads up that while he usually can't act his way out of a wet paper bag, Ben isn't completely incompetent behind the camera. And after all, he already had an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay under his belt by the time most of us had ever heard of him. As unlikely as Ben Affleck accepting an Oscar for Best Picture seems, it actually isn't the craziest thing about today's film. The true story of the rescue of six would-be captives during the Iran hostage crisis of 1979 is so bonkers-ass insane that it's almost unbelievable. In adapting the tale of Cold War diplomacy and espionage, the film does play fast and loose with some of the facts, but not necessarily in the name of Hollywood sensationalism. And the end result is a movie that really is trying its best. That kind of tepid accolade doesn't usually translate into Oscar gold. But with source material this batshit nuts, and a regional history so mired in complexity that even calling it a clusterfuck doesn't really seem to do it justice, trying its best was a pretty tall order to begin with. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come along as a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. Make a real podcast about a real movie about a fake movie. 2012's Oscar-winning thriller starring, produced, and directed by Zack Snyder's Batman, Argo. <laughs> Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. We're on number somebody something. I think we were just talking about potentially rearranging this order, but uh, my name is Dan and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And we're here to talk about 
a Ben Affleck-directed film from 2012 called Argo. Argo, fuck yourself. (laughs) Ben Affleck had directed two other films before this one, and both were well-received. But this film is what convinced everyone he could really make a movie. Argo adapts the bizarre true story of the Canadian caper when Iran stormed the U.S. Embassy in 1979 and six escapees were eventually smuggled out of the country, posing as a Canadian film crew. So in reality, the escape efforts were led by Canada, with the CIA playing a supporting role. Argo, on the other hand, oversells the CIA's involvement, simplifies the bureaucratic side of the story, and amps up the drama during the escape. Despite it playing a little fast and loose with history, its budget of $44 million and final box office results of over $230 million, seven Oscar nominations and three wins for Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, and Editing, as well as a myriad of other awards. Fuck you. Fuck, j- you <laughs> don't do it. it God damn it. Still considered a huge success. <laughs> oh, eat my ass. <laughs> I honestly had a difficult time finding any truly negative reviews. All the big names thoroughly enjoyed it, especially the acting by John Goodman and Alan Arkin. The costuming, set design, and editing feels spot on to the 70s vibe that Affleck is injecting into every scene of this film. Chris Terrio's screenplay works despite the crazy premise, and it's still the best thing he's ever written. The cinematography and editing work hand in hand to heighten the emotion and suspense right up until the end. I am always intrigued when I find out a story is based on true events, and pretty much right after I watch it, I start researching to see what actually happened versus what's been portrayed on screen. And it is pretty rare for events being adapted to be this outlandish. So how do you two feel about these kinds of adaptations? So that's interesting. It sounds like our perception of how true, uh, how true story or based on true story films are as a whole is slightly different because I did not find this to be on the extreme side of the outlandishness scale. Oh, no. To be clear, I'm saying the story in itself, what actually happened is crazy and outlandish. Oh, gotcha. And therefore adapting it, it feels like it's a, it feels unbelievable. And it's, crazy how true it is and how little they amped up we're on the same page then yeah because i didn't i didn't find that the play i I thought this was a great example to a certain extent i didn't agree with every decision they made when they swerved from the original story or what really happened but i thought this was an example of don't let the truth get in the way of a good story right when it comes to composite characters that they combined or time periods that they compressed to give it this sort of clock ticking countdown kind of feel to the suspense where it's like you know they're on to them you know they're gonna get caught or they're gonna be real close to getting caught and it's a race to the end of the movie i think that does require some adjustments to be made so that the pacing works out perfectly and for the most part i was with the decisions they made and so i was overall pretty impressed with ben affleck as a director i thought he was good in the role And yeah, overall, I think what they did worked. Um, I'm sure towards the end, we'll get to my professional aviation opinion on some of the air traffic control slash. That's when we'll hear the real opinions come flying. Right. 747 escape scene. But again, 
I don't know. I think with some things you have to be like, this is a movie and a movie is meant to entertain. So for something that I think needed to educate people a little bit on the events prior to this and on what actually happened. The adaptation worked for you as well. Yeah, the adaptation worked for me. And it was interesting to learn a little bit about the history. And yeah, at times I thought the exposition was good enough. At times I thought they could have explained certain things a little bit more, but very gripping and a good watch overall. The the big complaint that I heard about with the adaptation from, from folks fairly immediately after was like people started fact checking the the ending. Yeah. Was was the thing that I heard the most uh complaint about. But from a, a an adaptation standpoint, it's really tricky to stay in something where like they went to the airport, they went through security, got on the plane and left. And that's kind of how that actually went down. There was a delay. There was a, a mechanical delay of one hour after they boarded the plane. They didn't really run into any hiccups. They weren't pulled off into a room and so on and so forth. And they clearly did not hop into some military vehicles and cop cars and chase them down on the runway. But it didn't feel like a walk in the park to the people who were doing it. So when you're adapting something, especially a true event like this, you have to not only take into account what really happened and not really fuck with that too much in a way that like changes outcomes or changes history, but you also have to convey what the people who you're telling the story about were feeling in that time and moment. So they, they leaned into that more, I think is, is pretty much what, what all the filmmakers had had said was their intention there. That's a really good way to put it. Um, and especially when you compare what Katie brought up, the hour mechanical delay. Imagine how one of them must have felt just sitting on the plane calmly drinking soda water for an hour, wondering, are we going to get caught? Is this plane going to get turned around, et cetera? Was it actually a mechanical delay or are they fucking with us? Yeah. Like, you know, that sure, kind of sure. thing. The paranoia that you would be experiencing. Right. And on a spectrum of how do you translate this to the screen, anybody with a brain would know that you can't show a plane being held up for an hour and make for an interesting film. So I think that you're spot on when you say that, like in, in my perspective, the end justifies the means. If they were going with transcribing the feeling they must have had to the audience where the stakes for us are much lower because we're just watching the story unfold, then if that's what they were going for, they did some cinematic trickery to make that happen. Yeah, no. And, and Katie, to get back to your, your original question, as far as like based on a true story kind of tales in the first place, I have a bit of a love hate relationship with them love because a movie that I grew up watching all the time was they died with their boots on, which is the biopic of George Armstrong Custer which on Turner classic movies, I think Robert Osborne was the one who, when Robert Osborne throws shade at you, like you pretty much deserve it. But he was like, this movie is famous for being the least accurate true story ever told on film. The only things they got right 
was that there was a general named George Armstrong Custer, and he did die at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Everything else was like 90% bullshit. I wonder if that's a, is that a Razzie category? Least true to life, true story? It should be. The Razzies are in no way that introspective, (laughs) to be clear. (laughs) And yes, that is some shade. Yeah, uh, from Robert Osborne, that's hilarious. But in that movie was made in the 30s, back when people still, I guess, thought Custer was a good dude. So it's like Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. It's a well done movie, but it's horseshit. And I still love it anyway. You get into <laughs> something more recent like Hacksaw Ridge. And there's a lot of debate about how talk about another like insane story that, you know, is is also still true to life. Mel Gibson has said that like when he was asked about how unbelievable this the events depicted were, he said that if he there were actually things that they cut out because they thought nobody would believe them. But there was like there were things that actually happened that we didn't include because it seemed too far fetched and people would just start laughing. And you do hear that from time to time. That is a decision filmmakers make. However, Mel Gibson does not exactly have the best track record with keeping history to the real story. <laughs> no. But again, you look at Braveheart and right. that is deviating in all sorts of fascinating ways. <laughs> and and I I did some I did some research on this and I looked and saw what exactly is different and it is pretty minimal and it is all pretty much for the reasons you guys are talking about where they're making these changes so that um it, it's not boring, you know, because they've waited for something like 78 days before they got out and they weren't just at the Canadians. Mm -hmm. They were also at all of these different other ambassadors and Uh, embassies, embassies. Thank you. And staying with like in their own private homes, not in the embassy necessarily like they were. And to correct something that the film gets very wrong, both the British and the New Zealand, which they say did nothing to help them. Absolutely did. (laughs) Both the Brits and the New Zealanders were like, We did help you, you dirty liars. And to Affleck's credit, I will say that in response to Canadian audiences complaining that the role of the Canadians had been uh, downplayed so much, he made the decision to add the postscript at the end of the film saying, you know, the Canadian ambassador, I forget what the wording says, but basically the Canadian ambassador was instrumental. A lot of these ideas were his. And this was one of the greatest examples of an international coalition, like getting something, you know, so he, at least he wasn't arrogant in the sense that he was like, well, this is my film and who the oh, hell yeah. are you? At least he was like, yeah, my bad. Like, let me try and repair that. So I, I totally there. respect that choice. And it's in order to keep the pacing that this film has and keep people's interest and all of that, like you really do have to streamline the story and that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. make it a bad adaptation in my mind. Like you have to do what's appropriate, but they never actually go to the market. Like they, they were not forced to go and prove themselves in the market. And that's a great scene. That bizarre scene is just on point. The CIA purposefully planned or whoever planned the tickets purposefully planned that their flight would be at such a time that the airport people would be sleepy and that the revolutionary guards wouldn't be on duty yet. So, and That's very smart. 
this was all from the CIA. They did a little, they did a Twitter feed about what's real versus what's not, which was funny. And they were involved in making this movie, to be clear. So there's a reason why it's so pro-CIA. Is it? Because it doesn't look too great. I mean, it's it's very pro-Tony Mendez. Yes. Yes. And it's his story. Yeah, exactly. So that's the other thing is that, like, you're telling the story from the perspective of Tony Mendez. It's going to focus on his contributions rather than the Canadians. But I right. thought the Canadians looked pretty fucking good in this movie, too. Well, so the Canadians look good. But what I would say cements this as a, I think, pro-CIA depiction. I mean, of course, it's a it's a good story with a happy ending where the CIA are kind of the heroes, or at least they played a part in that role. But Operation Eagle Claw, which was the government's response to try and get the hostages out, is mentioned briefly by Brian Cranston's character. And essentially, Tony Mendez is able to abort that entire mission because he's like, nope, sorry, we're going, we're, we're getting them out anyways. In real life, Operation Eagle Claw was a complete shit show disaster that resulted in the losses of eight service members and three helicopters went down and it was like embarrassing. And one of the things that probably ended up costing Jimmy Carter re-election. So I think it's pretty funny that they just swept yeah. that under the rug because if you were making a anti-American film or if you just wanted to show like incompetence you could make a whole movie about how bad that operation went down it was one of Delta Force's first operations and I didn't read into it in super detail but a couple of them were like maintenance issues with the helicopters oh, so kind of things that could have been prevented but then there was an actual collision between two aircraft which is where uh, eight service members died and then they ended up now that was between or that was trying to get the hostages out yeah so not not these six the actual hostages the 50-something folks who were... Right, the 55 that, that ended up staying for over a year. Yeah, so I think the fact that the CIA was able to give them unprecedented access to Langley, like Inside and Out, etc., and I'm sure disclose some information, I think part of the deal was probably, but we're just going to not talk about this operation too much that like is really pretty embarrassing. Not to mention, of course, the role that the CIA had into the history that led us to this right. point, which I'll bring up in a second. So this is a pretty flowery depiction of the CIA, although they were successful in this particular operation. I was just thinking that like the so things that I I was not really surprised would make it into like a pro CIA storyline, but just things that are like, oh, that's fucked up. Like they were just going to let the six die by getting caught there and like dragged out of the Canadian ambassador's house instead of trying to get them out because it looks less embarrassing and is more of a world outrage kind of thing. And I was like, that kind of calculus sucks and I hate it, but I know it happens at the same time. These are things right. that that's like certainly above my pay grade and above most people's pay grades. But yeah. And I think the line exchanged about, you know, if you get caught, we're not going to own you. The CIA is not going to, is just going to, I think that's super standard spy shit. You know, yeah. that's the here, have your cyanide pill go with God. You, you, you signed that contract. You know what you're getting into. Exactly. The people that he went to go get out didn't necessarily sign that same contract. Right. So the, the whole like, uh, fuck them. The thinking has changed. They're going to die one way or the other. We want them to die in a way that's not embarrassing to us. 
And from a military perspective, or to someone who's used to a military chain of command, that is the interesting thing about diplomatic service and the civil service. And to be honest, even like Department of Transportation, like all of us federal government workers, we still swear the same oath that the military does to protect the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so to see... Brian Cranston. Sorry, I can't remember the name of his character. He's always Brian Cranston. Mm-hmm. Right. So Mendez's boss. I think it's Brian fucking Cranston, I think might be his middle name. <laughs> That's his official. Brian, that guy fucks Cranston. Yeah, Brian Cranston fucks. You tell the director to call the White House. Do your fucking job. To have him like disrespecting his boss openly and yelling at him to do his job, like that is stuff that does happen. But for civilians, there is a defined chain of command where it's like, we follow orders here. That's why we're not doing that. So it's somewhat of a paramilitary organization. It's just different from regular, you know, office work. And so it's always interesting to see how that's depicted and to watch that go down because it's not as clear as a rank structure. You know, when there's rank and it's on your uniform, Whoever is the highest rank is going to get final say. You can fight it if you want, but you're going to get like thrown in jail eventually. Like you, you can't, you know, whereas here there's like a little more leeway, but you can still that they're still confined by a very rigid structure. See, I I think the interesting part in this is how well Affleck kind of tries to walk the line of reality and fiction, because like that. And one of the things this film did face criticism for that, not from the filmic perspective, but more from a sociological perspective, is how it portrays the Iranians or Iranians, excuse me. And that opening bit that's animated, it's pretty blatantly honest about what actually happened. I mean, the CIA did do all of those things and the and the British forces did do all of those things because otherwise their entire economy would have collapsed because the oil companies and all that jazz. So I liked that it gave that little opening perspective and does not shy away from saying that this is who is responsible for this, but it never goes further than that. It like acknowledges these are the events. Right. And it's also a very condensed brief retelling of those events. There's a lot missing from there, which is fine. That's the decision you make in terms of exposition. Right. You get two minutes to tell this story. What are you going to tell? Yeah, and you can kill something by too much exposition. That's what's tricky about history and military history and politics. And it's like, okay, the exposition is kind of important here. And if we're talking to the crowd that's 45, 50 and under, you know, you weren't really an adult when this went down or you weren't born. It, like, it's it's easy to kind of forget everything that's happened since the 40s in Iran. And honestly, this was my first time learning about some of it. I'm glad you brought up the sort of storyboard sequence at the beginning, because the first time I saw it, I was like, what the hell are they doing? Why are they doing this in like comic book form? And then, of course, after watching the film once, I was like, oh, okay, this is more of a storyboard idea. That makes sense. I'm wondering how well you guys think that worked, because when I started mulling it over, this might be a Dan makes it better segment, but let's see if you guys agree. So... If you think about the storyboarding exposition at the beginning with hand-drawn characters, essentially, of the Shah, it's not disrespectful, but it's, you know, comic book style Mm -hmm. or graphic novel style. Now, fast forward to the scene where they're actually doing a table read in costume for the film Argo, and the editing is done to juxtapose 
what's going on, I think, in the country right after the protests with with them doing the table read. It's almost like that press conference. So what I was thinking is, I wonder why they didn't try and draw storyboards that fit the visual of Argo. So sort of like this cheap Flash Gordon knockoff, right? And with those images, tell the story of the Shah and all that. Because I feel like there was a, there would have been a way to sort of blend the two elements thematically together a little bit more. Still juxtaposing it with real footage, because we saw some real footage of the history and pictures of the Shah. You could have still done that. But I feel like not taking advantage of the fact that the storyboards in the actual film and then the costumes are sort of this... 1950s science fiction Flash Gordon look. I feel like that was a misstep. I would have liked to see them do a little bit more of that in the way they drew the stuff at the beginning. Otherwise, why are you animating it? Because the style is the same. Well, the costumes and all of that is different. The style of the artist and the storyboarding is still the same between Mm -hmm. those initial scenes and what comes later. And I think there would have been a significant and real risk of looking disrespectful towards Iran. And this is an incredibly sensitive thing that they're talking about. And these are all people like some of those people are still alive. Lots of them are probably Mm -hmm. still alive. So I think that's more how they tried to blend those two things is to use. It's like if the same artist had been drawing it's like they use the same storyboard artist to create them. It's just the storyboard artist is working in two very different worlds. So, but I get what you, I get where you're coming from. And I think for me, I think the thing that really threw it off was the use of color in that opening monologue, the opening bit. If you had stuck more to black and white, like we then see later in those storyboards, it would have been mm. more reminiscent. I could see what you mean in that. Not that there's any way you're not going to piss off the average Iranian or the Iranian government shooting this film, period. However, like you're you're not going to fix it and make it so that this is like a number one hit in Iran. There's not the kingdom of heaven of Iran. (laughs) Right. However, I I could see that if you, for example, drew like a Ming style character as the Ayatollah, that would be looked at as like really offensive. So I could see how trying to blend that more would have been kind of skirting with more controversy. Do they still love Ayatollah Khomeini over there? Like he's been dead for a long time. Like is he still? Probably depends on the individual. But I did find out. This movie is actually something there are there are. And this was all rumor that I read online. There are suspected to be tens of thousands of copies of this movie in Iran. The government has obviously obviously came out against it when it when it premiered, but it isn't out of the picture that the average everyday Iranian has seen this movie and has thoughts about it. Oh, interesting. So it is very much a bootleg there as a lot of things right. are. They have a lot of they have a heavy bootleg sense. industry in film there. So interestingly though, Apart from the crowd scenes, I never really saw anything that I necessarily held, like any depictions of an Iranian character or an Iranian character that was, that seemed like bad to me, even like the big bad, the, the, the revolutionary guard guy at the, at the airport gate who interrogates them in the room, as far as like characters that we see and interact with. He was kind of a badass and really intelligent 
and really engaging. Like maybe it was just his eyes, but like I could not stop watching this guy. And I, and I never really felt like, Oh, this guy is bad or malicious or crafty necessarily. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, it never came off as cartoonish or maligning anybody or anything. Not cartoonish, but you didn't find him intimidating. I did. I found him intimidating, but that's his job okay. to like be right. like that. A guy who's trying to stop people from sneaking out of the country. Like, I don't necessarily hold that against the guy doing his job. You know what I mean? He wasn't like, he wasn't abusive. He wasn't like, I mean, they talk about like pulling fingernails out. The Americans do, or Ben Affleck does. Sorry, Mendez does. Right. Yeah. No, that's exactly. That's, you know, Ben Affleck, like in probably the worst line reading in the whole movie is talking about like, well, how's that going to work when they're getting their fingernails pulled out? I didn't see him doing that, of course this i didn't get like evil vibes from him like if that's the guy that we have to get past that is a reasonable person to get past at the same time i would say that what the savak were doing oftentimes was behind closed doors so they do show you the guy getting shot in the street yes and so that's like oh okay these guys mean business and there's not really any accountability for this police force they can kind of get away with doing whatever they want so i think the implied threat which you see in the girl's eyes when she's talking to him she's being super dotting her eyes and crossing her t's and being very nice and and being very careful not to lie directly. Are we talking about the same guy? Are you, are you talking about the guy at the airport? Or are you talking about the guy who comes to the house? No, no, the guy at the gate. I'm saying I'm, I'm pretty sure he's part of the same team that then comes crashing through the gate later in a jeep and 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 breaks into the house. Yeah, no, not the not the guy at the airport gate who interrogates them in the room. No, 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 no. the gate to the to the house, right where she says like everyone in this house supports. Iran is a friend of Iran. Yes, is a friend of Iran. Thank you. And, you know, they were diplomats. They were friends of Iran to a certain extent a couple of days Although ago. She did lie about how many days they were there. This is yep. true. But you can tell she's doing her best to kind of walk that line. And I think the threat behind his eyes, that captain's character, is the threat of the Savak and the rumors of people disappearing mm-hmm. and never being seen again and torture and feigned executions and all those kinds of things so i mean i agree with you they didn't make him cartoonish or like evil looking sinister yeah he's not quite at the same level of charisma but i think that hans landa in inglorious bastards is like on a similar line obviously he's a different portrayal but i'm saying he represents the ss and he's a nazi so you know what's behind that organization but in the moment, he's very cordial and very friendly and very engaging. And you kind of want to talk to him because he's like kind of fun to talk. You know what I mean? So like there's a little bit of that going on. Yes. Although Hans Landa would have just murdered these people. Sure. <laughs> like he would have taken them into a broom closet and choked them one by one. But again, we do see this guy come crashing through the gate later in his Jeep and sort of like I, I was yes. thinking, damn, if you were in that house when they are SWAT teaming their way through the house like this, you'd be crapping your pants. See, the the interesting thing about this is that there's really only that I could find two actual people of 
Iran depicted in this, and that is Ayatollah Khomeini. And the woman who is speaking for the students who are holding the hostages is Masume Ebtekar, who is a is the vice president of Iran for Women and Family Affairs right now. But they portray her as I think they call it her Tehran Mary in in the credits. But that is who was mm. actually speaking for the students and who was actually working with them and was their voice. Interesting. So and she gets very little time, but she is definitely you get a little bit of a sense as her being the voice of the students who are very obviously violently holding these t- these hostages. And Khomeini seems very, you know, oblique almost because you don't really get a lot of him well you don't actually see him right he's more of like the big brother is watching you figure that's on the posters he is in one news clip okay. at least one yep, news you see clip an interview he's with dubbed over. um dan rather i think it is who was there right i think it was dan rather um but yes there was news people there and they did interview him during this time period and so we get to see that but they had somebody playing the woman right like they recreated yes. that scene yes. and had somebody yeah, playing they, her. So it wasn't they like they didn't use actual footage of her, but there, that's, there wasn't like a, a, a person playing Khomeini. No, I don't believe so. Right. I believe all of that comes from footage. No, nobody, no, nobody, nobody was cast as him. No. So they, but I think the depictions they portray of the everyday Iranian feel pretty understandable. Like, especially if you, I mean, if you know more about the situation, it's even more understandable. But like when they are in the market and that guy started suddenly is like, you took my picture, give me back that picture. Like, and just starts freaking out. It's like, oh, that was such a good scene. Well, that scene didn't actually happen in their real lives. It is such a great depiction of how tense everything is right now for them in that moment. And even if they weren't. The six hostages, right? These are just actual Canadian film crew. You can still understand how they would be anxious and nervous and not quite sure how to handle it because they're, you know, very obviously white people in white Westerners, rather, in Iran during a very fraught time. So I think it's really going to depend on how much understanding you're willing to extend to those folks. And I think generally... You know, certainly in the 70s and late early 80s, there was none extended. And now or in 2012, when this came out, I'm not sure how much there would have been. But I think Affleck did the best he could. So I've always my whole life heard references to, oh, yeah, when the U.S. kind of put the shine power or when such and such happened. And it's always like just said in a, in a small comment where I like didn't know the background or the history. So. Um, here's a little bit of what's happening behind the scenes. This is a, a little more expanded version of what they tell you at the beginning of the film. So all the way back in 1941, Reza Shah Pahlavi was forced by the British to abdicate in favor of his son, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, the Shah. Shah means king in Persian or Farsi. In 1944, Mohammad Mossadegh was elected to the Persian parliament, or the Majlis of Iran. And Mossadegh later, uh, in 51, has so much support that he ends up being nominated as premier, and did a lot of work to nationalize the British-owned Anglo-Iranian oil company, which later in 1954 became the British Petroleum Company, also known as BP. 
So you could see the dirty little fingers of big oil in the background of this story. Some of these leaders did great things. Mostek was a reformer. He introduced unemployment compensation, made factory owners pay benefits to sick and injured workers, and freed peasants from forced labor on their landlords' estates. In 1953, there was competition, basically, for control of the Iranian government. The Shah was trying to dismiss Mossadegh, but Mossadegh was really popular, and supporters took the streets and ended up forcing the Shah to leave the country. Shortly thereafter, Britain and the U.S., using the CIA, sponsored a coup that restored the Shah to power and deposed Mossadegh and imprisoned him for treason. So what's happened at this point is that the CIA has deposed a democratically elected leader in Iran who had done a lot of things that the lower middle class Iranians were going to be happy about and reinstated the Shah, which is just not going to sit well with the population. So from 53 to 77, in a 24 plus year period, the Shah did some good things, but depends on your perspective and who you are. He really pushed to westernize and modernize Iran by nationalizing certain industries and granting women's suffrage. So again, not all bad. But he also established the Savak, which is this sort of secret police that tortured and murdered thousands of the Shah's political opponents. Eventually, the Shah lost the support of the Shia clergy of Iran, and due to alleged corruption, his autocratic rule, you know, the creation of the Savak, the forced westernization, he lost the support of the clergy as well as the more progressive leftists in the country. During this suppression, he exiled Ayatollah Khomeini, who was a former professor of philosophy in Qom, uh, in 1964. In 1978, popular demonstrations against the Shah began. The Shah responded with both concessions and repression and had some of the anti-Shah protesters killed. So government and oil workers also went on strike and closed down the oil industry at the time. I imagine this probably had an effect on the global oil prices. I remember people talking about the 70s and oil being super expensive. Yeah, when you had to like... Lines for the gas. Well, not just lines for the gas, but like there was a day based on your your uh, license plate number. If it ended in like an odd number, you got to go on a like Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of arrangement. And then if it was an even number, you got to go on a different day. So that leads us to 1979, where the Shah finally left Iran in exile. Khomeini returned from exile in February. And on April 1st, Khomeini declared Iran an Islamic Republic, starting to undo some of that westernization, etc. This is kind of where the film starts. There was one quick hostage crisis in February of 79 with a Marine being injured and kidnapped and eventually rescued. And that was sort of the beginning of this. That's called the Valentine's Day open house. But the November 4th, 1979 demonstrations by religious students at a local university is what we're starting to see at the beginning of the film. They were demanding that the Shah be returned to Iran for trial and execution. After the overthrow, the U.S. froze a bunch of Iran's assets, so it started affecting the economy there. And that kind of leads us into the events of the film. So that's a lot of the background of what's been going on for the 25 plus years prior to this. So a lot of meddling by the U.S., which is obviously... Standard operating procedure. Yeah, SOP, but also very frowned upon by other countries and always has the issue of blowback. What's going to happen... So we get involved, we install somewhat of a dictator, essentially, 
to benefit our foreign policy and help, you know, and have BP make deals, et cetera. But what's going to happen later? And we've kind of seen what happened later. So and it's still happening. I mean, like this is a this is a problem that's not that has not gone away. Mm -hmm. It's only gotten more complicated as time has passed. It has. And it's it's more complicated than I. So I don't remember his name. I'm sure he was a bad dude, and it's not important for me to remember his name. But the Iranian general that a couple of years ago, Suleimani, that's the one. I was having a conversation with a friend, and I was like, you know, they were like, nah, fuck him good. I'm glad he's dead. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm glad he's dead and everything. But like, that was like a foreign head of state. Like, is it okay to just be blowing away like official representatives of another nation's government? Because he's a bad dude. And my friend was like, well, fun fact, America has not recognized Iran as a nation since 1979. Really? It is a rogue terrorist state, according to the United States government. There is no diplomatic what have you. Like it is. So it's like anybody who is like air quotes, I guess, of the government of Iran does not actually represent a country in the eyes of the United States. And that is batshit insane to me. How convenient for them. My whole life, Iran has just been an an imaginary place that like people believe in enough so it exists, but like America doesn't acknowledge. And I'm like, this is insane. Like, which is funny when you think about like, not to steer off topic too much or anything, but the the number of nations that are like we don't recognize israel and we're like how do you not recognize israel i can point to it on a map it's right there and like this whole time we've been doing the same shit to iran i'm like i don't even know what's going on with anything right now like you just killed that head of state but this happens governments do this all the time they do though, and it's right been- i've heard people say palestine is not a real place I've heard people say that. And like, obviously, that's a ridiculous statement, at least in my opinion. But, you know, China doesn't recognize Taiwan's sovereignty or they're always flirting with that. Like, right. No, they really don't. And like, if America recognizes Taiwan, it could cause global catastrophe just by saying like, hey, Taiwan. Right. American global politics are such a shit show when you get really deep into the minutiae especially when it comes to the Middle East and especially when it comes to the last 80 years or so. And I think Argo really tries to like capture that a little bit of it, just a little bit and make it this very human story and tell this interesting spy slash the thing I didn't really get in any of the reviews. Talk about how it's such a great comedy. It's like, I don't. Okay. Yep. I mean, I get it, but also... No, I get that from from John Goodman and particularly Alan Arkin, who's always excellent. I mean, those scenes are funny. Right, but that doesn't and make something a comedy in my mind. No, like, but they're... Definitely not a there comedy. There are distinct moments of levity, especially in the scenes in Hollywood. It doesn't matter. It's a fake movie. If I'm doing a fake movie, it's going to be a fake hit. I think yes. that's where it comes from. Like, if, if this... If more of this movie took place in Hollywood, this would be more of a comedy because those guys were fucking killing me. Like, they're great. Right. Yeah, and there's they are definitely great. a reason why they got in every fucking review. They got top mentions. This, but like Goodman and Arkin were just 
everybody loved him. And I think they do a fantastic job because they do feel very Hollywood. And the other real person that's portrayed in this is John Chambers, the guy who uh, John Goodman is playing. He was a award-winning special effects person, did a lot of different makeup. He won a honorary Oscar for Planet of the Apes. Because I, I wondered, I was like, Planet of the Apes, what the fuck? Why is that the thing that triggers this idea? And it's because John Chambers did the makeup and Mendez knew him and was kind of involved because Chambers was slightly related to being a CIA asset in some ways. So that was why it was Planet of the Apes. Well, that's a good deep joke movie. <laughs> so... First of all, I read, interestingly, in a bit of obscure trivia, that this is the first film to win an Oscar that portrays someone who has won an Oscar. <laughs> um, I think that's probably true. Yeah. But what's an honorary Oscar exactly? So an honorary Oscar is one of what are now called the Governor's <laughs> Awards. Hang on a second. Let me just dust off my tome of Oscar love. <laughs> Uh, because you say to the person who for two years was a, a film critic who specialized in the Oscars. And I love it. The Oscars are my fucking Christmas. I mean, I this is the this is the meme where I, I break the pool cue and throw it on the <laughs> ground and you guys can fight it out over who I just need to know what the hell an honorary it's Oscar funny. is and I'm sure I'm some sorry, Katie, you go right ahead. You tell I just <laughs> no, have a major fucking axe to grind with the Academy about the quote unquote governor's awards. Then go for it. I don't. So I'm interested to hear your axe and grinding here. <laughs> so my my axe and I'm grinding and I'm good. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm going to go on so fucking long about this that Dan's going to have to cut it all out. And you're going to wonder why I'm out of breath in like two seconds. No, no. But you got you got three minutes. Right, I'll see what I can do. So honorary <laughs> Oscars are non-competitive Oscars that are usually given to somebody for a body of work. Honorary Oscars can sometimes also just be given when somebody does something that's batshit insane that is they deem worthy of being given an Oscar. Uh, Walt Disney got seven an, os an honorary Oscar and seven miniature honorary Oscars mm -hmm. for Snow White and the Seven right. Dwarfs. They haven't done anything that cheeky since then, to the best of my knowledge, but... Um, you have like the humanitarian awards, you have lifetime, uh, achievement. lifetime achievement awards. Did you get a statue? Yes. Well, mm -hmm. I think the humanitarian award is a different statue, but they used to give these like during the awards ceremony, they wouldn't do the sci tech awards in the ceremony. Those were always a separate event. And that was like, you know, people who were like in the nitty gritty of the technological side of filmmaking and came up with a new lens or a new light bulb or they've, they've, you know, changed how 3d is working and the mocap guys probably got SciTech awards, but number of years ago, they took the honorary awards out of the primetime televised slot. So they're not at the main award ceremony anymore mm, sometimes they are they're at a separate governor they had them this year because they were running out of shit to do because nobody was at the oscars this year i think it all depends on what it all depends on what the show is about and who's getting the oscar like when jackie chan got the oscar they had that shit at the awards i but don't if it's think that when wait when was that when did jackie chan get his honorary oscar I thought that was 2019. We are really in the weeds here. Because they have been doing the governor's awards 
and a separate thing for a number of years now, and it's bullshit and I hate it for a number of reasons. But I can sum them all up by saying some of the greatest and most memorable Oscar moments of all time have happened during these honorary awards. It was 2016. Kirk Douglas getting his Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was his first public appearance since recovering from a stroke. Amazing moment to watch. It was fantastic. Catherine Hepburn won won four competitive Oscars, never showed up to get a single one of them. Her only Oscars appearance was to present an award to a Lifetime Achievement Award to one of her best friends who was getting one and like fucking showed up in her jammies. Catherine Hepburn don't give up. She did not care. That's why I love her. That's pretty awesome. It's just like so many great moments for people who like you can give somebody a Lifetime Achievement Award and honor them and then just like have it at a separate thing and like show the highlight reel in front of like all these people like just just bring them back as the show is going to be long anyway anyway so john chambers had won an oscar and was also this cia asset but i will say that the alan arkin character is a conglomeration of a few different people that they kind of like I would guess at least some of it is those people didn't want to be named the cia didn't want to name their connections that type of thing my personal best guess is that there is at least a little bit of Roger Corman in him. Yeah. Because, Dan, do you not know who Roger Corman is? He's like the biggest B-movie director ever. He gave Jack Nicholson his start. Yeah, like he's started so many amazing careers and paths. And like, he's awesome. Did Roger he did the original uh, Little Shop of Horrors? Was that a Roger Corman? I think so. Because that was black an and early, white one. Yeah, that was an early Jack Nicholson role. So Roger Corman was known as this guy in Hollywood who would take crappy scripts and churn out a profit. Like in the 80s, he would spend a million dollars on a movie and make 40 million in return and less money earlier, you know. So that's very much who this implies. And there were a few of those of those guys then. Roger Corman, um, the two dudes who were involved with Canon Films, I think we're still we're getting their start this early. So That part to me was the most entertaining to watch because it was like, I know there are actually guys like this who have piles of crappy scripts that they're just like, "Eh, I can make $50,000 budget on that one and I'll get a million back. Good enough. So it's, it's interesting how, how Affleck chose to try to have as much reality and still have that showmanship as he could. Like, for instance, the scene where they're having that table read, that shit actually happened. They had a bunch of people nice. come and fancy <laughs> costumes made and did like a press yep, release, made ads, had a party, all of that stuff. And it's not unusual, especially then. It is. It was totally not unusual for people to do that for movies that they were actually trying to make, and then they never actually got made because funding fell through or one thing or another. It's in turnaround. Yep, it's in turnaround or it's on option or whatever. <laughs> like that wasn't unusual. Those are all uh, fall under the umbrella of stuck in development hell. Yeah, where they have an IMDb page that just lives forever but never gets updated. I'd also say that budget-wise, Alan Arkin is probably sucking up the uh, casting budget for like at least four people. So the fact that they took three, four real people and put them all into one, I'm like, that's a that's just a that's just efficient use of money. <laughs> yeah, man. Right. You got to get Alan Arkin if you can get Alan Arkin, and he's perfect. Oh, while he's still around, yeah, Alan Arkin is hilarious. The funny thing is, is that Alan Harkin kind of looks a little bit like Roger Corman, a bald Roger Corman. He does rather. But he does. 
he doesn't have the same way of speaking. And I don't, I don't know if Roger Corman is Jewish, but Jesus, I, it was just the B movie fan in me was like, I, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. I would watch a whole movie of just these two guys. So why is it called Argo? Because <laughs> the spaceship, it's the, the name of the, the ship, like the Argonaut. No, it's the, the ship. It goes. I don't fucking know. It's a spaceship. It goes all throughout space. Like he sounds like he's doing Bernie. <laughs> Like he sounds like he's doing Bernie Sanders, but that's just fucking right? how Alan Arkin talks. And I love it. So I want to ask you guys a question that for this show and this topic will be a little bit cliche. So we don't ask it often, but I feel like it's appropriate here. Is this a war film? And if not, why does it deserve to be on our main feed? Cause I have an answer, but I want to ask you guys first, Katie, do you have an answer? When we talk about war, there's a lot of different kinds of war and what's been going on between ourselves and Iran for decades and decades at this point is essentially to me some kind of a cold war, like where things heat up and they cool down and depending on who's in charge. And this is an example, one of the big examples where shit got white hot for a minute there, 400 and 44 days wasn't it that the Mm -hmm. hostages were held and it is a particularly good example of showing the american reaction because we don't get a lot of it but it is very meaningful when we see those interviews with the american people who are giving their thoughts on what we should do and how it should be handled and i think the the spy rescue mission and all of that it feels very in keeping with a 70s war or a spy like a 70s thriller movie and for me it works that way but i could see how for some people they'd be like this isn't a war movie but i'm on board what do you think liam i think that a lot of katie's thoughts are my thoughts on this one i think there is enough there's enough machine guns in this for me to call it a war movie <laughs> um, it, you know, it's, that's, that's a kind of a dumb metric, but like there is the storming of the embassy. Like there are those scenes and maybe they're mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. riot scenes, maybe they're protest scenes, but it's, you know, there, there are people who are violently taken hostage at gunpoint and held right. as, as essentially military prisoners that, justifies it at least that much as far as the the very basic bar of hurdling to 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 clear to to get to the thing with the stuff the war movies that's what we're here to talk about (laughs) um but also like what katie was saying this is something that i like it i and i still count it as a war movie when you kind of um See, like the, I don't even know how to exactly describe this, but like you see the people in the walls in the giant clock, like everybody sees the face of the clock and they know that's a clock. But then you also have like the people who like are oiling gears and like turning dials and stuff like that to make the clock do the thing that it does and to keep it moving. This is one of those clockwork movies to me where it's like you, you see the inner workings of the stuff that's going on behind the war. Yeah, I'm on board with you guys. I mean, if if you're trying to label it as a subgenre, I would say Cold War, not to mention that from some perspectives, an armed break into the U.S. Embassy is essentially an armed invasion of U.S. soil. So, you know, I think that qualifies. It's certainly a violent act, not to mention that 
it does show you some of the machinations before and during that have led us to the relation we have with Iran now, which seems to be to one level or another, always on the brink of like, are they going to develop nukes? Are they going to nuke Israel? Are we going to nuke Iran? So it's definitely for me, it qualifies as like a cold war. Affleck won the Oscar here for best film. It won best picture to be clear. So when it, when a film wins best picture, the director does not get it. It's the the producers, but he very specifically did not even get nominated for best director. And that was a huge controversy. The people who won Blatantly came out and were like, Affleck was robbed. Well, (laughs) and Affleck himself, when asked about it, said, well, they didn't nominate me for my acting either. So I don't know what that says. (laughs) (laughs) So he stayed humble. Well, fucking Ang Lee won this year. And let me tell you about me hating Ang Lee. Oh, boy. Here we go. uh, Life of Pi. And fuck that movie, too. Oh, okay. (laughs) That movie (laughs) sucks and is stupid. Please refer to Liam's previous rant about Ang Lee in... Might have been Atonement. Yeah, I think so. I think that was Atonement. But so my feeling about this movie is that it won Best Picture specifically because Ben Affleck did not get nominated for Best Director. I think if Ah. Ben Affleck had been nominated for Best Director, this movie does not beat... A more Beasts of the Southern Wild probably doesn't beat Django Unchained and might not beat Zero Dark Thirty, which were all movies that it was up against. But Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow is the first woman director to win Best Director and ever with Zero Dark Thirty. No, that was The Hurt Locker several years before. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Same director. My apologies. Yeah, both Catherine Bigelow. Wow, we're just mansplaining female directors to Katie Lennon. That's how we roll on here. And then I got it wrong. (laughs) All the splainings are manly. We need need a giant gong to be like, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, (laughs) other movies on here, like the the terrible Les Mis movie was nominated for Best Picture. Shouldn't have been. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Fuck that movie, too. Uh, don't even get me started on Jennifer Lawrence, but yeah, like this is, there was a really solid slate of films up that year that Argo, I really like this movie, like a lot. And I thought Ben Affleck directed a tight ass movie. Like it was well-directed. Yeah, and I agree. He very easily could have and should have been nominated for best director over Ang Lee any day of the week and twice on Sunday. But I really don't think this movie would have won Best Picture if it weren't for the fact that everybody was like, what do you mean the Academy didn't nominate Ben Affleck for Best Director? Then we're going to give it Best Picture just to show us because, oh, yeah, we didn't nominate him, but we have to fix that. Like, it's weird Academy backlashing against their own shit kind of stuff. And I love, like I said, the Oscars are my time of year. It's, it is my Christmas. And if you think of, I don't know if we're going to still have Golden Globes going forward, but if you think about the Golden Globes as being Thanksgiving, they, the two seasons kind of mirror each other an awful lot too. Golden Globes are garbage. They are. And they always have been. Speaking of direction, think about a couple of your favorite moments in the film. I think the last 10 minutes of this movie are just like really, really tight. The pacing, the camera movements during like the chase scene that didn't really happen, but like was awesome. The way they cut between 
and this is more editing than perhaps than mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. well, the editing is pretty phenomenal and it won an oscar it won an oscar as it should have but like cutting between like the canadian embassy the airport the sweatshop kids that are putting the pictures together the guy at that office you know like just going through that was really nicely paced so good job editing but also I really like the way that chase scene was was filmed. So, again, you can have the conversation as to is that the director, is that the cinematographer, how much is the editor, mm-hmm. and putting all this stuff together. But ultimately, it usually all kind of falls under the like if the director's like I didn't like this, change it. Like unless there's studio pressure coming down from above saying don't do what the director just told you to do, like we talked about with Kingdom of Heaven, how many how many different ways a a film can not be the director's original vision. I don't know. I think that's really where he shined, shown, sheen, sheened, Sean. Charlie sheened the most. Oh, not sheened. He no, sheened. No. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I am on a drug. It's called Charlie Sheen. <laughs> totally picked up Dan's sister and. Uh, oh, boy. So I think the Affleck's. There are choices he made that I really liked. And there are choices he made that I thought were interesting but didn't necessarily like them like his abs I think the, no i don't think we get to see his abs i you don't do. know if he had abs in this one you, oh, he did you? needlessly he's like putting on his shirt for no damn reason oh, he's that's just right. like all like Ugh. but i think affleck's choices in this like he makes the very clear choice as the director in the beginning to focus on um tony throughout the entire film i honestly couldn't tell you the names of any of the six hostages I knew I know one of them was Clea Duvall and one of them was Scoot McNary. And that's about it. I know the the one guy's cover name was Mike McEwen. Like I remember oh. that. I only know him as Mike McEwen. Like I don't yeah. know the actual character's name, but he's like, I'm Mike McEwen, eh? Yes, yes. Like so he uses like it's very obvious to me that he is using this story to really dig into who the character of Tony is because we get a lot of background about his his well we get background about his family life we see how important his son is to him um we kind of see the ideas bubbling up in his head and he seems very much the mastermind of all of this that was happening and he is very much the protagonist in it which felt weird because again he's not one of the hostages <laughs> But it also works really well. Like, as lo- once you accept the fact that, like, this isn't really a story about the hostage crisis. This is about how this guy helped get these six people home and what went through his head and how he did it and all of that. And considering it's based on Tony's book, that makes a whole lot of sense. I also found that a lot of the choices they made in the writing and Affleck's performance and the editing a lot of the choices were subtle, um, especially with his character. Like, for example, I liked the subtlety with which his, like, mild depression slash alcoholism is depicted. You don't have some big tropey scene, right, where he gets hammered and is in a hallway, you know, with his shirt untucked, throwing up and realizing that his life's falling apart and that his mission just fell apart. And that's when he makes this like, there's a moment like that, right? Where he's drinking by himself and just thinking all night, but it wasn't over the top. It wasn't overacted. And I really appreciated that because I felt like they were trying to show 
some flaws in his character and trying to show him as just like a regular dude trying to make it through this relatively dangerous and shitty situation. And I really respected that choice. It was, it seemed like a mature choice to me in terms of a director who is cat, you know, who's also the star of the film. I liked that about it. And a few of the technical things too. I mean, the fact that they passed basically a few eight millimeter cameras around the crowd in the protest scene at the beginning. And that's where the grainier footage comes in. And I was like, man, you can tell this isn't real, but it's also really well done. And yeah. it gives it that feel it's real of enough. a real demonstration. Verisimilitude, mm-hmm. truth seeming. Yes. Right. And I think they filmed most of this in 35 millimeter. And in the editing, I think most of the shots were, uh, panned or zoomed in a little bit to increase the grain to give it kind of that 70s mm-hmm. look so like all those little subtle choices i thought worked really well i think one of maybe the less subtle moments is when they are at the airport at the swiss air counter trying to get the tickets and the the person working the desk says sorry they're not here and he's like could you try again right and then we see the the other end of it and the cia is going nuts trying to get the tickets through and the tickets come through and you see it pop up on the computer and then it just pans to Affleck's face and he's like, thank you. And you can tell he's trying to keep his cool and you just see him look up like, like he's like looking at the sky like thank fucking mm-hmm. the Lord has worked out. I like that moment, you know, so the moment for me where I was impressed with the 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 light hand of the director, like the light touch that he had is the scene when they're in the room and they're being interrogated by Beardy McBeautiful Eyes. Mm-hmm. is when nerdy mcglass's face <laughs> so, sorry stashy mcglass's face not that's nerdy. scoot mcnary that's that actor scoot mcnary not I mean, his real name is almost as ridiculous as your parodies of him so name. it works scoot mcnary <laughs> scoot mcnary face so not 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 nerdy mcglass's face but stash mcglass's face when he kind of takes over like steps to the front and is like starts speaking in farsi and explaining the movie to them that's great that's a great part of it but also that is something that would be like in a shittier director would have been like the camera would like zoom in on him while he's like this is we'll call this Liam makes it worse like it like you see the thought <laughs> you see the wheels turning as he's like oh things are going wrong and Ben Affleck's like, uh, I'm losing control of the situation. I'm bad at my CIA mm-hmm. stuff. And then Stashy McGlass's face is like, this is it. It's now or never. And like, you see the determined, like he furrows his brow a little bit. And then he steps to the fore and like, you could have so easily overplayed every single aspect of this, but even right. some of his best lines in this scene are almost stepped on maybe even by himself. But like the the throwaway line, of course, I speak Farsi. I want to shoot a film in Iran is like that was fucking smooth as shit. Mm. Don't step to me because I know what I'm talking about. Before this, that guy had been portrayed as the one who was the most suspicious of the plan and definitely the most sensible of them. It's like, this ain't going to fucking work. What are you guys talking about? Are you crazy? And then when it time comes... It, it would be so easy to take that moment because you've set him up as the prick the whole time. Right. The realist, to be clear. It's so easy to just like go both barrels into this guy having his moment. 
of of redemption. And it's almost like he just stumbles into it and then everybody's panicking like right before he starts talking, everybody's panicking and trying to find a justification and then he he's like ding shit I got it. And then he steps forward and starts taking over and everybody else is like okay, it kind of seems to be working. Let's all just shut the fuck up and hope it hope it hope it happens. And I love how they all nerd out. And there's space. There's space given to it. They all nerd out over the the storyboards oh real hollywood storyboards that kind of excitement is just it it transcends barriers you know um speaking of the storyboards katie did you notice who had drawn the real storyboards in real life no i didn't i missed that jack kirby no fucking way yeah and you can look him up online that's amazing i knew they looked familiar jack kirby cia asset (laughs) in real life argo was called lord of light And it's a real script that they had. And Jack Kirby did a bunch of art for it, which you can find online. Also in development, apparently, is a documentary about the real story. That's amazing. Was anybody else really hoping that they were going to actually make Argo after this one best picture? Like, make the movie? I would 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 fucking pay money to see this movie. (laughs) There's a few choices here and there. Again, I'm on the record as... If you mix up an airplane model by one model because of a two-year difference, I don't care. I don't care that this 747-300, like, wasn't available until 1982. Like, who gives a <laughs> shit? Um, but they did make some choices, like, they resisted the urge to give all the Iranian guards AK-47s because it wasn't until two years later that the AK-47 uh, in this country was sort of distributed to the forces and was ubiquitous. And so they had... Jeff's going to kill me because I didn't write down what uh, assault rifles they actually have in the scenes, but I'm sure he'll talk about it. Um, but those were accurate to the, the specific time period depicted. So, again, I, I liked that attention to detail. Did you catch the rhesus monkey joke about the director? Yes. Some of the speculation is that that was sort of an inside joke between the writers and the crew about Affleck because they say, I think it's when Alan Arkin says, I could teach a rhesus monkey to be a director. And like the camera pans to (laughs) Affleck's face after that. (laughs) And Affleck is known for being pretty self-deprecating. So I'm sure that was his choice, to be clear. Well, did you see when, when he won Best Director at like the People's Choice Awards? For this movie, because no. mm-hmm. he also swept all the other Best Director awards. Yeah. Because he wasn't nominated for the Oscar, everybody else gave him Best Director. He earned a myriad of other I awards. I fucking hate you so oh, much. I hope man. you die a horrible Katie, death. Love me. Katie, keep it under control. I Sorry, <laughs> I saw my opportunity and I had to go for it. Uh, it's okay. Katie shits on Liam is a good segment that's not going to come up that often. No. I fully support Operation Katie Shits on Liam. <laughs> War on Liam was supposed to be for the Patreon guys. Come on. Well, they're getting a taste. Hey, they're guys, getting a taste. guys, focus up. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking seriously, focus up. I was wondering when that was going to come into the discussion. <sighs> oh, yeah. He won the People's Choice Award for it. And he made a joke about how there was a movie that had... Uh, that depicted the People's Choice Awards having the, uh, the Ben Affleck Lifetime Achievement Award. And he was like, that's, I thought it was funny before. It's kind of even funnier now. (laughs) I'm glad that he's self-deprecating. I feel like a lot of his performance of Mendez kind of matches that meme of Ben Affleck kind of out of shape, smoking a cigarette outside. And he's just looking up like all bummed. See, he's not, that's the thing is that like, I'm pretty sure Ben Affleck is a smart guy. Is this going to be Liam defends Ben Affleck? I will see where this goes. I'm not sure where I'm going yet. He's a smart guy. 
judging from Goodwill Hunting, which he co-wrote with Matt Damon, he can write. Right. And that was his first Oscar win, yes. to be clear. You know, I don't know what the workload was on that because it was ampersand, not and. So they wrote it together. And he can obviously direct a hell of a film like he's good behind the camera. Most of the time, he's not the best choice to be in front of the camera. And I think this was one of those moments. Was this movie made better by Ben Affleck being in it? I don't know that anybody can reasonably argue that that is the case. I loved mm. his hair. I loved his, mm. like he he captured that late 70s, early 80s vibe. But I don't know that like there wasn't somebody else that could have brought more to that role because he basically just, for the most part, kind of stood there and said his lines. He schlubbed. And here's where my, I'm going to disagree with you, Liam. I think it works because he's such a schlub, but because mm -hmm. when we think of CIA agents, and I think this is my, this is my personal opinion, and I could be incredibly wrong about this. When you think of CIA agents, especially people who are performing these kinds of really difficult things, like you're not getting James Bond. You're not getting someone who is flashy and memorable. You are getting just an average Joe who can really blend into the background and just kind of be there and not take up much notice. And Affleck does that really, really well in this. And I think. I don't know. I didn't. I disagree. I don't think he did. But like, I know what you're saying, because for all the flaws, here's another one that it should be on the list if it's not. And there's myriad problems with it but i kind of love it anyway <laughs> is charlie wilson's war oh okay. philip seymour hoffman nails the aesthetic you're talking about he does mm -hmm. philip seymour hoffman was perfection at that well philip seymour hoffman was just perfection and i'm sorry he's dead that's true for that's sure true. yeah but i feel like somebody else could have done this schlubbiness better i'm gonna split the middle here i think yes there are other actors who could have done Affleck's role in this film better. But I think considering the direction Affleck could have gone, I actually really appreciate his portrayal because overall I felt that it was subtle and it showed a tired person who's trying to make decisions and trying to like do the right thing. So I'm going to give it to him that for who he is and what I've seen him do in other films, he did a great job with this film not necessarily the most perfect casting on right. earth but I, it doesn't ruin the film it works for me i like his character so it doesn't take anything away from the movie but he's certainly not adding shit to it in front of the camera for my money i think he adds a lot more behind the camera in this film that he does in front i yes. will agree with you there like give me fat brendan fraser in this role like post brendan fraser was in a bad place at this well point. yeah so like brendan fraser disappeared and then like showed up in crash in 2005. And I was like, is that fat Brendan Frazier? And yeah, it was. And I could see that version of Brendan Frazier being in this role. I think you mean sexier Brendan Frazier. Sexier <laughs> than George of the jungle. Yes. I don't think so. Or the mummy. Come on. Not into hard bodies. That's all I'm saying. Here's what two people much, much more famous than us had to say about this film. Jimmy Carter was getting in it was asked a question about how he liked the film in an interview and he said that he loved the film and thought it deserved best oscar 
he was just disappointed about the downplaying of the Canadian involvement, but that was his only critique of the film. He thought that they did a really nice job. That's fucking Jimmy Carter all over, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That's the oh, most yeah. Jimmy Carter nice response guy. I've ever Sweetest heard. Sweetest man. <laughs> and for Katie, do you know what famous critic said this? That this was his pick for best film of the year. There were a couple who, who picked it. Um, my personal favorite who picked it was Manola Dargis, um, who wrote for the New York Times at this point. Was it Ebert? Yes, this was Ebert's last pick before he died okay. for best film I, of the year. I did read his review nice. as well, and I don't remember if... Usually, when you write your reviews, you are writing it months and months and months and months and months before anybody else is even going to sure, see it. Sure, sure. So, he doesn't say it in there, but I do remember how much he talked it up but i would bet that this is one of those near the end of the year you give your you know this is my top 10 films but manola dargas for those of you who don't know who she is she's a fabulous film critic it's good now katie i have a question for you Mm -hmm. as a film critic when you're rolling into your this is the best film of the year this should win best picture how much of this is their sincere opinion that this is the best picture of the year And how much of it is them trying to predict what is going to be the best picture of the year at the Oscars? Because I could see there being a certain amount of clout that comes with being able to say you called it. So you're going to pick what you think is going to win, even if there was something else that you thought should win instead. Okay, so as someone who wrote for uh, sites that really value Oscars, I have a lot of friends who are very much Oscar followers and that type of thing and who really do care um like i know several people who write for the gold derby who who your prediction count is important and like when i wrote for next best picture we kept tally of who was the who was the most accurate let me tell you I never won that tally or I was always in last place because <laughs> I think there's 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 a lot of different ways film critics approach this. And I think there's generally folks who they want to talk about movies they feel are important. And there are folks who want to talk about the movies that really spoke to them. And that's the kind of critic I am. For instance, one of my favorites one year that was very I think this was the year Green Book came out. Uh, it was The Florida Project, <laughs> which nobody saw and had no chance but i still was like it's going for best picture but it had willem dafoe in it and willem dafoe got a best uh best supporting nod for it and he should have he should have won and then there are folks who it's like okay it's whether or not you're objectively asking what is going to be considered the best picture by the academy and criticism and what is what do i think is the best picture of the year because those are generally two very different things and even the most devoted oscar follower has those two different categories because predicting that kind of stuff is very much it's it's an art you know you're watching all kinds of you're watching every single little critics award event and keeping tally and all this stuff but i think generally when you're dealing with big critics they are talking about movies that really touch them like roger ebert or manola dargis or somebody like that they're giving their best knowing that their word has influence and the vast majority of those people are just not really invested in Oscar bait or Oscars in general. They're kind of outside of that. They generally have their own critics groups that they're much bigger involved and much more involved with. So it's kind of both. You really have to know what kind of critic you're following 
And generally, they're pretty open about what they're saying, whether or not this is my favorite film of the year, or this is what I think is going to win Best Picture, or this is what I think is the best film that was made this year, because those are three very, very different things. And most reputable film critics are going to be able to distinguish between those three ideas. So if they don't specify then you should be suspect. But generally, they're going to tell you this is this is what I'm going for with this recommendation or this list or whatever. Because I'm pretty sure everybody knew that this was going to win Best Picture. Yeah, I believe it was a heavily predicted to win. But I don't know how anybody could watch this and Beasts of the Southern Wild back to back and think that this was better than Beasts of the Southern Wild. There are different questions entirely. If you're talking about what's going to win Best Picture, I predicted... To my sadness, I was right that Green Book was going to fucking win Best Picture. I was so mad about that. My editor was like, no, honey, that's not going to happen. Don't even worry about it. It's not going to happen. I was like, I think it might happen. And then, bam, it did. So it's like you really have to think about what's going to appeal to the Oscar audience, which is now a much more changing thing than it was in 2012. Can't be Moonlight every year, you know? No. And there was going to be backlash for Moonlight winning anyway. So I think... You really have to think about what question you're asking and what question the critic is answering in order to take their opinion with that correct grain of salt. It's like, okay, well, is this the thing that just spoke to you and you loved it and you think it's great and everyone should watch it? Or is it the thing that you cynically think is going to attract the most votes from the Academy? Very rarely for most film critics are those things going to align because most film critics I know see lots of fucking movies and so their tastes... They like obscure, weird stuff that really goes places that the Academy is never going to watch. So there's my answer for my experience as a critic. Thank you. So now I think it's about time for the breakdown where we talk about what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam, you're up first. So I feel like the objective of this was multi-layered it wanted to tell the story of tony mendez and the escape of the the six house guests in a compelling way that did justice to their experience acknowledged the flaws in u.s foreign policy that put them in the position they were in and was a fun watch that's what I think the objective of the movie was. I think it fucking nailed it personally. And I really like this movie. Wow. Did Liam just give like a 60 second you're break? You're fucking right. I did. Liam, I, I, I did that for you, you're, Dan. You're way under budget on time. <laughs> the objective of this film, I really think, is like what Liam said. I think Affleck really wanted to give a more nuanced idea of what was happening in Iran, tell this really bizarre out there story in all of its crazy nuance with, you know, the Hollywood side and the government side and the actual terrifying side of being there. And I, I think he was just really invested in making something that felt like it was of the 70s, like it was of the time. And all of that, for me, works really well. I think we can debate the minutia of how accurate it is to real life. But I think for one of these types of movies, it skews close enough that 
if it's going to get much closer, like you're not going to want a fictional film. You want a documentary because a documentary is meant to give you information, whereas a fictional film is meant to be more entertaining. Documentaries can do both, but that's their goal is to give you the reality sometimes anyway. So I think Affleck hit it. And here's where I'm going to be a little crazy about it. I don't know if I liked it. Ooh. I liked parts of it. Some of it was really interesting, but then some parts of it just felt like as we got near the end, I had these moments of like, okay, this is just beginning to feel too manufactured. Like they're running into every single possible roadblock and they're being chased and all this stuff is happening and it begins to feel too much like a movie to me and become something that's like, well, because for so much of it, it really does feel like Affleck is trying to hew to some semblance of our reality. And once you hit that last 20 minutes, it really just takes takes off and does its own thing. Which is fine, but for me, it felt a little bit overplayed. So I'd probably watch it again because I think there's more room for interpretation. And I want to watch Alan Arkin and John Goodman again because they're great in this. But I think there's just enough of it that just feels a little too trite and expected. I knew what would happen with every beat, and I don't like it when that happens. I don't like being able to say, okay, so... Oh, I see he's brought out the the storyboards. Okay, so now he's going to entice these guards with his telling of the story and they'll get away. You know, it's it just becomes too predictable. And so I liked it, but I also felt very disgruntled with it at certain points. <laughs> it's worth watching. And I think it's really a great directorial effort on Affleck's part. But I think for me, as someone who has watched a lot of these kinds of things and has seen this it just became it was like, okay, now the different. Now what is different and what I liked about it is over. And now we are playing into the standard tropes of this genre. So I think that's where it lost me. But I think Affleck did a great job as the director. And I'll probably go watch The Town soon, which was his second one, which was based in Boston. And that one is also supposed to be really good. Also, what was the other one he did? Gone Baby Gone? Gone Baby Gone. Yes, yes. Which I haven't seen either of the other two, but they're all they're both supposed to be pretty good. Yeah. So, Katie, I have a I have an idea for you, and this is how I'm going to reclaim my time. Oh, oh no. Just when we thought we were out. I pulled you back <laughs> he in. Pulls us back in. I would watch over and over again until my eyes bled. The Samuel Beckett absurdist stage play of this that is just Alan Arkin and John Goodman sitting by the phone. And the yeah, whole I story mean, is course. told yeah. through their perspective. A hundred percent. I would never, I'd be watching this right now. Like we wouldn't even just be doing about this those guys. Yeah. And then like every once in a while, Mendez comes in and like fills in some exposition or just has like verbal diarrhea. But, like, you got to really weird it up. Like, it's got to be, like, they're just standing there in a in a trash can uh, waiting for <laughs> Godot to come. Just, it, oh, mwah, I would love that. Right. And John Chambers, char- John Goodman's character is John Chambers. Like, just watching, it's like, all I could think while I was seeing him every time, I was like, how the fuck did you get into this? Because 
I bet it's a fascinating story how this Hollywood because my initial thoughts when he comes on screen, I was like, oh, so he's going to go and he's going to like put a bunch of makeup on him and and then they'll come home looking disguised. That's a thing, though. Like I, I a friend of a friend uh, went to Carnegie Mellon University for they were getting their masters in stage makeup and their the gig that they got after they got their masters was with the CIA teaching makeup techniques to their operatives. That's epic. Don't tell me you can't do anything with a theater degree is all I'm saying. That makes sense. That may, that gives a relation to how he would have been so well known. Dan, what's your breakdown? Well, first, I want to throw in a couple of little trivia things that I didn't get a chance to, but I thought they were interesting. Iran was definitely not happy with this film, and they sued the production, apparently in a French court. The judge dismissed the case, so he's, he thought they didn't have any grounds to sue. Well, they don't exist, so they couldn't have sued them in an American court. Boom! Checkmate, Iran. I was reading that Ben Affleck really, really wanted to get uh, when the levee breaks by Led Zeppelin into the film. And so he called up their agent, you know, talked to the band. And I think he, they'd already shot the scene with the record, with the needle going down. And they sort of, as you would as a standard by default, play the record at the beginning. And I can't remember which member of the band or whether it was the manager or what they said, you can have it, but you got to reshoot that scene because that song is on side B of Led Zeppelin 4 about halfway through the record. And Affleck agreed. So he reshot just the scene with the needle drop so that Led Zeppelin could have an accurate needle drop for where the levee breaks. And I just love that. I love it. You guys are awesome. I love I love Led Zeppelin and Ben Affleck for that. And if that's the condition, it's like, of course we're going to do that. Right. And good I'd for you like, on wanting it accurate. Oh, you know? absolutely. I'll shoot it right fucking now if I if it means I get to play <laughs> do this Do you want to drop the needle too? Like, you're like Robert Plant's hand just... Exactly. Yeah, so I think that in terms of... I agree with you guys. What they were going for here was to... They were going for balance, which is something that I always really appreciate. That's just something... It's the way my brain works. And so to think of... The perfect straight, dry documentary about this versus a ridiculously fake Hollywood entertainment version of it. I really think they walked the middle on this and kind of hit the best of both worlds. So to go for entertainment, but also to really show some directorial chops and some great editing, great casting uh, for the most part, acting. Yeah, again, Alan Ark and John Goodman. So I loved all of that, and I really think they nailed what they were going for here. I will agree with Katie that if there's anything that I would change or that's a bit of a letdown, it is kind of the end of the film because they stacked too many of those things into the plot, whereas they could have changed a couple of things from real life to give it that pressure and that intensity. In fact, I'll try my hand at Dan does it better. And I think that in terms of the chase scene with the plane and the cop cars and all that, I think in a slightly more subtle version of that scene, if you just have the guards getting into the operational area of the airport with their guns and just running in, 
and then having the 747 at full speed come by on a perpendicular angle and taking off and them like being pissed. I think that would have been a more realistic way to show that they're pissed off that they made it, even though in real life it was too early in the morning. Nobody ever made it there, let alone chase them down the runway. So I think that would have been a, a way you could have done that and still maintained that aspect, but being slightly closer to reality. That being said, of course, you have an air traffic controller on the show, so I'm going to have to talk about th- there's an actual control tower shown in detail here from the inside, which is not something you see very often. And I'm pretty convinced that they filmed... This is all filmed in Turkey. Yeah. Um, and I didn't look up what airport they used or how many of the scenes were really shot at the airport. But I think they did shoot those scenes inside a real control tower because I just don't see them justifying the expense of building that out as a set. You see a lot of these plastic holders with paper flight strips in them those are still used we use just paper at sfo we just slide the paper around Um, but a lot of places especially radar like approach and centers use these plastic strip holders with strips in them to move the planes around essentially and that's what you see in this tower which is still done to this day in some places so the equipment they're wearing is accurate the phraseology for the most part that you see exchange with the pilot is rel it's good enough you know it's not like on point but it's pretty accurate and yeah i think for iran had they gotten to those controllers in time they could have def- especially at gunpoint obviously security is a little lax but this is an authoritarian state and it's well before 9 11 so i can imagine that they would have gotten access to the tower pretty easily We think about this all the time. We're like, okay, what if someone makes it through the guards and through the security gates and actually makes it up to the tower? We're like, dude, we got 15 chairs up here that we can toss down that stairwell (laughs) coming up here. So, and 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 aren't most of you ex-military? Good 60 percent. Yeah, yeah. You're not gonna have a good time trying to take over a control tower in the U.S. in most most places. You're gonna get a pretty good response. So, if they had done that, though, like, at what point would it have been too late for them? Is it at takeoff? Is it? when they clear the airspace like what's the deal in real life in modern times we do get things like united such and such is taxiing out and the company calls us on the line and they're like hey do you still have united 2034 i'd be like yeah he's taxing to the runway can you tell him to call company you know they forgot to load a bag or the the captain's paperwork has an issue and sometimes they have to hold and like someone go out in a tug and actually hand them some paperwork or sometimes they have to go back to the gate and fix something. Basically, we're not going to abort a takeoff clearance for that unless it's like an emergency and they're like, oh shit, we just realized the maintenance records on engine number one are like totally screwed and like that plane is going to have a serious maintenance issue. That'd be something where maybe we'd cancel takeoff clearance. In this particular case, yeah, had they gotten to those controllers while the plane was taxiing and pointed guns at them, the controllers would have stopped the plane and that would have been the end of it. But like once it's on the runway and taking off, like the controller's not going to be like, hey guys, stop. I mean, yeah, in terms of safety uh, without getting too technical, once I issue a takeoff clearance and a plane starts rolling, I have like a few seconds if I need to, to abort their takeoff clearance, get the pilots to bring the power down, slam on the brakes in like a timely fashion. And so they don't have blazing hot brakes. Cause what happens is if you shut somebody down when they're going too fast, the heat caused by the brakes trying to slow the plane down along with the power coming down, they can light the tires on fire. Like th- right. there have been fires because of that. So, yeah. And again, I can't compare the U.S. to like an authoritarian state. Honestly, if like SFPD came up to the tower, guns ablaze and was like, you need to stop that plane. My first question would be like, why? Like, what am I stopping it for? Because there's a 
well, there's a higher mission there, and those people don't necessarily have any authority. In an authoritarian government, that's totally different, right? It's like that's a place where people with guns can take you away, and so it's just a different situation. I think more egregiously, once you have the vehicles on the runway, a 747 like that is going to have a takeoff speed, generally speaking, between like 160 and 180 knots, something like that, which knots are a little bit, that's a little faster than miles per hour. So we're talking about, but basically between 150 and 200 miles an hour is the speed it takes for that airplane to get airborne. You're not keeping up with it in some- But those were the good old 70s cop cars. Yeah, but like <laughs> your your jalopy is not going to keep up with the 747. Not to mention that they show them real close to those engines. At any point that you crossed anywhere in the path of the jet blast of that airplane that's like at full takeoff power with four engines, yeah, it would have flipped those cars over. So that is by far my least favorite scene in the film and I think could use some subtle reshooting. But it's entertaining. I When I saw the air traffic control scene and all of that, I was like, oh, hell yeah, we're going to get to hear about the air traffic stuff from <laughs> Like, It's rare. You know, you, you only get to see that perspective here and there. Exactly. It's just this little tiny perspective. This is your moment to come forward and speak Farsi and show us the show us the, the drawings. If you've ever flown anywhere, this is stuff that affects each individual person. <laughs> For sure. And I think the fact that air traffic is such a behind the scenes thing, mm-hmm. like you can get away with being pretty inaccurate about it and the average public is not going to know. So the fact right. that they took the time to film it for real and all that, like I give him props for that. That that was nice to see. So yeah, for me, the film works. Um, I think their attempt to sort of uh, uh, give a little bit of history to the American public on the situation that we are in in Iran and sort of like they didn't throw the CIA under the bus and they covered or they did talk about some things, but it's not a completely rosy depiction of the CIA or our foreign policy and kind of messes that we have helped cause or certainly exacerbate. Thank you very much to Dennis Myers and Rich Stevens for their great work on the historical research for this episode. And uh, yeah, I really like this film. I thought it was a winner and it made me respect Ben Affleck um, a lot as a director. I really got to give him some props. Uh, The Town by comparison, I think is a lot more formulaic and not as good of a film. But I think for Argo, he really nailed it. What are we doing next? Next time we are talking about Throne of Blood by Akira Kurosawa, starring Toshiro Mifune and Minoru Chiaki. So it is Kurosawa's response to, as Liam insists we call it, the Scottish play. Damn right. Macbeth. Don't say it. You have to like turn around three (laughs) times and spit and curse and you have to leave the building now. I'll do the dance after. I know that Liam and I have had the conversation where while we know a bit about his films, we have not actually watched a Kurosawa film yet. Well, I've, I've watched Kurosawa films, not oh, you a have. lot of them. Like I've, okay. I've seen Ran. Ron. Ron. Ran. <laughs> I don't even know why you're trying, Katie. Ran is not a sound in Japan. I, I don't care. It's a sound in Pittsburgh. Uh, that's the best I can do. That's why I call it Bo Travail instead of Bo Travai. Wow, so you, you can say Iran, but you can't say Ron. I had to specifically make <laughs> myself say Iran because Katie corrected herself when she said Iranian. And I was like, oh, so I guess I can't. Is that bad? No. Is it bad to say Iran? Ar- Iran? Iranian? Anyways. So 
I haven't seen a whole lot of Kurosawa, but I have seen a few of his really, really early stuff. And so I'm very excited to talk about this because he is nice. definitely a master. So Yeah, I'm at zero, so I'm super stoked to watch this and, and see what I get. Kurosawa was such a western influence director like he was very open mm -hmm. and honest about the fact that a lot of his movies were influenced by spaghetti westerns by mm -hmm. shakespeare a lot of that stuff so this is going to be a very interesting film well with that we're going to close we are uh doing our best here to keep the episodes under two hours nice nice job everybody we pulled it off yeah and uh yeah for those of you guys who've been with us since the beginning again we want to thank you for we want to thank you for all your support, and we're excited for our Patreon to come out here in the next four to six weeks, something like that. We've got a lot of fun episodes that are already in the bank um, for that. Uh, the one way you can help us out before that happens is if you want to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can, that really helps out, get some exposure to the show. And thank you, everyone who's been participating in the historical research for these episodes. You know, we really, this project wouldn't work without all of you guys being involved. So thank you. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you guys so much. Goodbye. Baby,